listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL Parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Hello, this week we have with us Dr. Ira Glavinsky. He is on the Faculty of Education and Arts Education at Brooklyn College in New York, and he is an adjunct professor still with the PhD program in Infant and Early Child Development at Fielding Graduate University, which was originally started by Dr. Stanley Greenspan and ICDL. Uh, he also founded the Glavinsky Center for Child and Family in West Bloomfield, Michigan, where he uses a developmental individual differences relationship-based model framework, which he has been doing remotely since the shutdown. And he last year co-authored two chapters in a book published by Elsevier Press called Autism 360 about assessment. We have done four podcasts together already. Dr. Glavinsky, a developmental approach overview, early social emotional capacities, the foundation for regulation and focusing on regulation. And today, Dr. Glavinsky wants to talk about interoception, the eighth sensory system. Welcome, Dr. Glavinsky. Thanks, Terry. It's always good to be with you. Yeah, it's very nice to have you back. I know that in a couple of our podcasts before, you had mentioned interoception, and you referenced the book called Interoception, The Eighth Sensory System by occupational therapist Kelly Mahler. And now you are apparently on a roll with it and want to dive deeper into this topic. So I can't wait to hear how you got into it, and what your thoughts are. Okay, well, how I got into it was really feeling like something was missing in my work with young children, my therapeutic work with young children. And, and I've spent decades with that feeling hanging over me. And I came across the interoception book that Kelly wrote, and I loved it. And um, I think this was two years ago, I had been invited down to Atlanta. It was a three-day symposium. And unbeknownst to me, Kelly was on the um, same program that I was on and actually the same day. And the evening before our presentation, whole group of us were walking downtown with the people who had put on the symposium. And somebody in front of me turned around looking over her shoulder and said, oh, Kelly's here. And I was walking right next to her. I had never met her. And um, we spent the entire dinner, almost, um, chatting together and ended up going to the airport together after the conference was over. 
and um, really have become, I think, good friends. A couple of weeks after we met, um, I got this phone call from her and she asked me if I would write the forward to her curriculum, her interoceptive curriculum. And so the, the relationship has just strengthened um, as I became more aware and acquainted with interoception, what I began to see was the kids who I was seeing in therapy, many of them um, were presenting with difficulties that, that I would call interoceptive difficulties. And as we began to address um, these difficulties, yeah, I, I really think that my, my therapy changed um, because what interoception really causes you to do is it looks, it causes you to look at an individual at a totally different level than I think a lot of us, certainly my own training, um, just didn't address that level. Let's pause for a second to, I, I can't remember if I said that you are a clinical developmental psychologist? Clinical psychologist, yeah. Clinical psychologist. The kids that I work with, the kids that I'm attracted to working with are kids with severe mood disorders. So these kids are out of control. Um, another piece of it that really we, we should talk about and um, because it's led to my confusion about why aren't we seeing something. And, and also, I think we forgot to define what interoception is. <laughs> ah, okay. Interoception, um, sort of a simple way of looking at it, is our awareness of what's going on in our bodies rather than the sensitivity to stimulation from the outside. So we're talking about things like pain, hunger, thirst, but we're also talking about emotionality. Interoception is, interoception dances with emotionality and that's where my interest in it um, comes from. So when, when you see these, these kids that are acting out all over the place and two statistics that I bring up all the time is one, if you look at the Center for Disease Control statistics, between the ages of two and 17, and you look at attention deficits, you look at depression, you look at anxiety, and you look at behavior disorders. And what we see is that there's an explosion um, of millions of children who are presenting with those kinds of disorders. And, and in my own really area of specialization in bipolar disorder, and I think I've said this on other podcasts, if you go back to the census in 1940 and you bring the census up to date, what you find is that there are more and more children at younger and younger ages 
who were presenting with, with um, mood dysregulation and bipolar kinds of patterns. That, that's one of the statistics. The other is, um, I'm not sure of the year, but there was a study that was done by, I believe his name is Walter Gilliam. And um, he was looking at suspensions, expulsions of um, kids who were in preschool, daycare, nursery schools versus um, kids from kindergarten through grade 12 and found in his study there were something like 3.6 times more children who were being thrown out of preschools and nursery schools than K through 12 altogether. And that, that's just astounding um, that what we're seeing is this um, bombardment of young children who haven't developed the capacity for self-control, um, emotional and self-regulation. And we see these kids in therapy all the time. So what's missing in our work with very young children that is not addressing this kind of pattern of dysregulation. And I think in all of this, in my mind, is still very new. But, but my, my feeling about it is that our, our work in therapy is highly verbal. And, and what we assume is we assume that children understand emotionality and emotional words. Um, and they may have the Webster's Dictionary definition, but they really don't have the sense of the, the visceral experience of feelings. And, and I'll give you two quick examples. One I may have given in the previous podcast, but um, one was a 14-year-old boy who was in my waiting room and I could hear through the walls, he was yelling, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm so angry. And um, when I went out into the waiting room to meet him, he came into the office with his mother and father and greeted me at the door by saying, I'm so angry. And, and when they sat down, his mother said to him, so tell him what you're so angry about. And I interrupted and I, I put up both of my hands and I said, wait, you said you were angry, right? Yeah, I'm really angry. I said, how do you know? And there was this dead silence. And he looked up and he said, I don't know. And this is a, a kid who I'd worked with and I knew was a very honest kid. And when he said, I don't know, he didn't know. So I, I said to him, let, let me just play around for a second. How do you know when you're hungry? And there was the silence and he said, I don't know. 
And, and his mother just, her eyes widened and she said, oh my gosh, now I understand. If I didn't tell him when to eat during the day, he would go through the whole day with not eating. So that, that was one example. The other example, which I may have given, was a, a little boy who came running into my office and he's saying, my mother's always telling me to calm down, calm down, will you calm down? And then my daddy comes home from work and he's saying, calm down, stop, calm down. And he looked up and he said, what's calm mean? And really had no idea. Um, I, I had a third little girl, um, a very young girl who um, was talking to me and she said, I'm so frustrated. And I looked at her and I said, whoo, frustrated, that's a really big word. What's frustrated mean? And she said, I don't know, but my mommy and my daddy use it all the time. So those kinds of experiences have really pointed to me that, wait a second, we just go on and we talk to kids about their feelings and we use all sorts of feeling words, but so many kids and adults also, they don't tune into their bodies and so they don't have the visceral experience and if you don't have the visceral, visceral experience, how can you work on regulation? It's, it's just very difficult. Very interesting, yeah. Um, so I know that with many autistic children and the parents that I hear from in the weekly online parent support that I do for ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, um, we discuss implementing DIR floor time, and a lot of the children don't necessarily ask for things that they need. And I know with my own son, we would never, ever hear from him that he's hungry or anything until about the last year or so. And he just turned 11, and he's progressing through the developmental capacities laid out by the DIR model. He's right in the heart of four, peaking into five and six. He's um, starting to tell us when he feels something, my, my tummy hurts, my tummy hurts. Okay. And then, you know, he'll have a bowel movement shortly after. He okay. never, ever would have said that a couple of years ago. He just would have been really aggressive and maybe swiped things or hit a, exactly. hit a kid. Exactly. Yeah. So would you say his sense of interoception is starting to develop? Yeah, well, I would certainly wonder. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Daria, that, that, if I can tell another quick story, it, it reminds me, um, because there are all sorts of variations of, of interoceptive difficulties. And um, I, I was working with a boy about seven years old who had been in therapy with two previous therapists who do good work. Um, nothing wrong with their, their, you know, work with kids. But he kept saying to me, they don't get it. They just don't get it. And, and I said, what don't they get? And he, he said, they're trying to teach me about anger and how to breathe deeply when I'm feeling angry. And they're telling me that anger is like a train coming down a track. 
So if you look down the track, you can see the light on the train and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you first see the light, I have to breathe slowly. They don't get it. They don't get it. What don't they get? He said, I don't feel anger coming down a track. I feel angry right before I explode. That's when I feel it. So the, the therapy geared on breathing, if you don't feel it, the therapy has to be shifted to, I have to help you to become a feeling person so that you can feel these things, identify these things going on inside you, and then we can work on strategies to deal with it. But we can't work on the strategies if you don't feel it. And, and, and I think, you know, some of us as therapists, we would not look at that tiny detail. We would go right into the mindfulness kind of work or the meditative kind of work or any other kind of work and not check out that temporal variable. When does the child feel the feeling does the feeling get stronger? Does the feeling stay the same? And those are variables that we really have to look at. That's why I've never liked the whole idea or practice of cognitive behavior therapy, because it assumes that you can control what you feel with your thoughts. And neuroscience shows us that that actually is not what happens. You have this emotion that erupts and you feel it or you don't, and then your cortex processes it. And that's um, right. Yes, yes, yes. So mm. even when you think you're making rational decisions, they've shown that they're actually based on emotion and you just give it meaning. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this is just a really exciting area. Um, it, it has certainly helped even on Zoom, you know, the teller health, um, working with kids and parents. And, and I, I think what I'm working on now with a few people is really a training program for parents to be able to attune to their kids and to be able to help them to develop both the sensation vocabulary, you need sensations first, to put those sensations together in clusters, to give those clusters feelings, names, vocabulary, and then to begin to do different things to help the child to do the regulating. So that connection between interoception and regulation is you're just a really important link um, on the chain. They go together. So what I'm hearing you say is, um, I've always thought of, and I haven't thought much at all, about interoception as the bodily functions. Like I, I feel pain in my stomach, right. um, I feel a headache, whatever it is, I, I feel sore because I bonked my knee the yeah. other day, tripped over the whatever. Um, and you're saying there's this whole other emotional aspect 
Absolutely. So will I feel when I'm starting to get angry? Will I feel that um, sense of disappointment if someone treats me a way that isn't nicely, if a teacher speaks badly to me, will I feel a sense of shame or all of this different range of emotion that exists is what I'm hearing you talk about. And, and a lot of that I think would be quite difficult with really young children, but as children get older and have more awareness and progress through the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, um, would you say that you'd, you'd have to be at that sort of sixth capacity of logical thinking to, to work on it or? I, my, my thought is much earlier. I mean, what, what you're saying reminds me of Dan Stern's work in 1985, the interpersonal world of the infant. And what we found out was that it wasn't that the infants couldn't do certain things. It's that we didn't have the tools. The tools weren't invented yet to tune into all of these things that infants are able to do. And, and so my sort of um, confusion right now um, is really, can we move down the developmental ladder and introduce different kinds of techniques at earlier and earlier ages? that will enable us to do it. And, and a, a really important example of that is touch. Touch is absolutely critical with infants. And touch starts in utero because a, a fetus is experiencing changes in amniotic fluid. And um, if you do ultrasounds of um, prenates, what you can see is the prenate bringing hand to mouth. And the prenate's experience of hand to mouth looks different than hand to forehead or hand to other parts of the body. When a baby is born and the baby is put on mother's abdomen, what both of them find out is the feeling from each other. So baby feels mother's body. And if mother is depressed or if mother is anxious, that feeling that gets transmitted to the newborn is going to be very different than that of the mother who's not experiencing that experience and the baby's feeling the baby's body is going to feel differently to mothers with different kinds of sensitivities so this dance that goes on between the baby and the mother starts from the get-go and what um sort of hypothesizing is if we can figure out how to start parents doing things with infants from birth that get the infants 
attuned to their bodies. And, you know, we use words like icky and gooey and all sorts of, you know, words that infants understand. Why can't we begin to match them with feeling words that they can tune in with? So we may not be able, and I'm thinking of a little girl who I work with, we may not be able to, you know, communicate clearly with, oh, you're angry. But a child who has watched, you know, lots of videos, they know the difference between a lion feeling and a rabbit feeling. And so um, with this little girl, she would tell me when she was anxious, she would say, is my rabbit feeling? And, and she knew what anger was because she would say, I really feel like a lion. So why can't we do that at younger ages? The, the issue is getting the parents into, you know, um, my idea is into training groups. And what we work on is we work on attunement. So they feel what something like what their sons or daughters are feeling because attunement is a visceral kind of experience. We work on synchrony. We work on marking experiences that stand out. We work on contingency and we work on co-regulation. And what I think is that we can work with very young kids and develop these kinds of concepts because we're really talking about concepts and my wondering is can we do something to decrease this acting out ac um, epidemic that we're mm -hmm. yeah and a number of those that you just mentioned the contingency the attunement and etc we went through in detail in a past podcast. So for listeners or viewers that want to look into that, I'm going to put a link to that in the blog post at affectautism.com. So check that out there. And when you talked about the, the baby laying on the mother and feeling whether she's anxious or depressed or happy or whatever, I think uh, Dr. Stuart Shanker in the self-reg model talks about interbrain so when we're trying to regulate with kids whether it's teachers in a classroom whatever that interbrain experience where you're calming each other down through co-regulating yes yes yeah yeah and and you know some people who i've spoken to um you know and, and i talk about interoception they'll say we do that we do that all the time but i wonder if they do it at that visceral level, you know, they, they talk to very, very young children about feelings to give them the feeling vocabulary, but that's still a cognitive kind of exercise versus viscerally working with the child to give them that experience. I just I I think that, that that's such a huge distinction because I see, you know, schools examples online, parents posting about, etc. those charts where it goes from, you know, green, yellow, and red, and the child's supposed to point where their feelings are, and then there's a 
happy face in the green and this grumpy face at the red. It's such a cognitive exercise. <laughs> it could be helpful on some level, but if you don't, like you said, it's about that visceral experience. And if, if the connection isn't there, then it's just memorized and trying to comply with what people are telling you versus understanding what's really happening and I guess interoception of what's happening in your body and, and being able to relate that and then label it cognitively going forward. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and what you're reminding me of um, is that facial expressions are often very deceiving. So when we look at those two dimensional charts, we have to be careful. Um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is um, a psychologist um, and wrote a book, I, I think it was called How Emotions Are Made, and talks about emotions as concepts, like any other concept. And um, she, in the book, there's this picture of this woman um, and she's, she's looking up and she is looking terrified. Most, if not all of the people who looked at that picture would say this was a woman who's experiencing trauma, terrified. Um, when you looked at the whole picture, it was Serena Williams winning Wimbledon and her excitement. <laughs> So we have to be very careful when we talk to children about facial expressions and what they're feeling, because we can also, I call it, play with their reality. We can tell them they're feeling angry by looking at their face, and that's not what they're feeling. They're feeling something else. And so we have to get it from them rather than to tell them what they're feeling and how they get it is by, you know, hundreds of experiences that give them the concept, oh, now I know what feeling angry is. I heard the word before, I was able to talk about it, but now I really understand what it is. So it's a conceptual understanding that I think is very important. Yeah, and really this interoception is, is you're describing it as a precursor to the functional emotional developmental capacities. It's, it's underneath regulation. It, I, I'm very eager to hear how you go in and, and do what you've just suggested you would like to do, but I'm thinking of experiences with my own son where he will, there, there's the level of seeing it elsewhere understanding it and labeling it but then there's that second step of feeling it yourself and being able to label it so i would guess that recognizing it is a first step and i'll give you a couple of examples he got this kick for a while i guess it was about two years ago now where he loved seeing emotional reactions in people so he was really aiming to get that emotional reaction and it was a play on cause and effect play but with people. So I think it started <laughs> when um, dad would brush his teeth and he didn't like it. So he smacked dad across the face. Well, dada didn't like that too much. So he reacted 
And that reaction was so satisfying to him that he just started smacking Dada across the face. And, you know, he's little, it didn't hurt, etc. It was more like irritating and, and, you know, triggered Dada. But when he's so excited to get that emotional reaction, and then, you know, you, you keep doing it, then he started doing it at school. So let's hit my friend and see how the friend reacts. Yeah. And again, not hard, not violent. And, and clearly he's not being a bad boy or being violent. He's just being playful. But at the same time, <laughs> you have to, you know, stop him from doing that kind of thing and help him recognize what's happening. So that was sort of a first stage that I noticed and then starting to label it. So he would start to see other kids in school were crying, having meltdowns and oh, so-and-so is really sad today, really upset, really frustrated, really angry. And maybe something happened at home where, um, I don't know, maybe Dada walked into something and hurt himself and went, ow. And he had that whole experience of loving that reaction of hearing, ow. So he wanted to do stuff to make people go, ow. And then, you know, oh, Dada hurt himself. He's he's angry or, or whatever it is. And then I noticed um, him showing an interest in a new cartoon because it was always Thomas and friends chugging in like train shows. Then all of a sudden he started watching this Daniel the Tiger. You know, it's like a cartoon, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, but it's with the tiger and the tiger and the um, cat, I think are playing in like a nursery school setting and the cat says, I'm making a train of, and I probably misremember it, but it was something like, I'm making a train of teddy bears, but Daniel Tiger was over there and didn't hear her. So he came and he put the tiger in and she was like, no. And she took the tiger and put it out. And then he came back and put the tiger in and said, no. And you can see the cat gets more and more angry. And my son just fixated on this, laughed his head off. And then she would say, meow, meow. And then, so he started saying, Katarina's angry, meow, meow. And so whenever he got angry, I or we or I got angry or Dada got angry, we would say, I would say, meow, meow, Dada got angry. And he loved it. Like, I can't tell you how much that made him giggle and laugh. And it was almost like this awareness of, I feel that way sometimes too. Do you think that, that that's what's happening in him? Like, I feel that too. And that's why I'm giggling. I, I think that's a wonderful example. I really appreciate that. You just gave me something. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if he actually yeah. is able to label his own anger yet, but sometimes, yeah. like, if he wants to do something, like, every day, he wants to go and buy Play-Doh at the store. And it was much cheaper than buying a new Thomas train every time we went to the store. So I realized I could say no, but this is my little sweetheart. So I'm like, okay, a dollar for Play-Doh. And he he plays with it and it's good. So we go to the store and we buy Play-Doh, but we can't go every day. I mean, in theory we could, but yeah. I don't want to. So I'll say no. And, and sometimes he'll be like, I want to go. I want to go. Um, I don't know that he's at the stage where he's actually saying, like, I'm really angry. Yeah. But I think it's in the process, perhaps. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Daria. Um, just something to think about because I, I, this whole thing is so complex. Um, and it's, it's still in its infancy. There's very, very little research on ch young children and almost no research on, on infants. But one of the things that you just triggered in me is what we do 
as adults with young children is we often mirror them and we often imitate them. And when we mirror or when we imitate the intensity of what we do um, may be confusing to the kids because they may not be sure whose feeling is whose. If, if the, the mirroring and the matching are exactly the same, that can be confusing. When we respond to young children, um, the word that I had used before, mark, we want to mark an experience. So a child um, draws a picture and is pleased with the picture and the parent goes, wow, that's beautiful. So now the child's feeling of, I just drew a nice picture and the parent's feeling of, wow, there's a difference. So I know that that feeling that my parent is expressing, that's their feeling, that's not my feeling. So as we interact with the kids, another thing that we have to think about is are we confusing them by just mirroring what they're doing and match or imitating what they're doing? Or are we expressing ourselves in a way that really helps us to convey the concept? And the way they get the concept of anger is going to have something to do with the intensity of the person's response and other kind of dynamics. That's how the concept is formed. Then the child knows, meow, is really angry. <laughs> right, right. That makes me think of the Vancouver clinical developmental psychologist, Dr. Gordon Newfeld, who talks a lot about attachment and parenting and says it is very natural in the way that we raise our children to praise them all the time and say things like, oh, wow, that's a great picture. And, and he says, and, and I'm paraphrasing, when you're doing that, you're basically making them have that reaction to um, respond to the parent. And it's, if you're saying, oh, wow, that's great. As a child, they're so eager to please their parents it becomes about that instead of just about the experience. Exactly. And he says that it's, it's better to just sort of casually say, Oh, you drew, you drew that picture today. Oh, it looks like it's a picture of so-and-so and just sort of comment on it. Yeah. Because if, if you say, Oh, great, that's great. The child wants to please you. And then it's more about compliance. It's complex. <laughs> What are the steps that you see bringing parents through in this training? And besides labeling and sort of pointing out to children and like how my son learned about the meow meow when he saw it, and maybe he understood that better than he understood it in people because it's two dimensional and it's, it's slower. It's a cartoon. It's a little bit safer than dealing with people that are very dynamic and, could be overwhelming and scary. I, I think, you know, part of it is a, a hopefully extending that 
DIR kind of model. Um, the, the first step right now is testing out and um, finding whether the parents are in tune with their bodies. So we, we spend a lot of time in, in the parent sessions um, working on visceral experience. And, and, and what I, I find is lots of parents will say to me things like, gee, I never thought about that. Or gee, nobody ever asked me that question about my body feeling. Um, you know, I've really never paid attention to my body feeling. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do and um, sort of flying by the seat of my pants is, is help parents with visceral concepts. And then what we're doing is we're having the parents and the kids in their place sessions and um, we're doing it on the screen. And, and one of the things that I'm finding is that I, I really like Zoom better than being in the office. Um, there's something about the interaction that feels like there's a different time frame in our back and forth. And there's, it feels like we can sort of um, munch on a concept. And, and I'm not sure why. It just feels like longer extended interactions. And so the parents are with the kids and we're doing the play sessions and vid videoing and what, what other people have done before, you know, show the parents the video, but it, it's what it feels like is the volume is turned up on the viscera, on the body part of it. And, and seeing a parent we're seeing lots of parents um, just saying, those are things that we never thought about. Those are things that we never talked about. I think that in itself is a major therapeutic step for me. And, and so I don't know at this point um, how different it's going to look. Um, that's where I, I sort of either email Kelly or call Kelly on the phone and, and, and say, help me with this. Help, I, this is what I'm experiencing. Um, so right now it's much more first step parents, getting them not to use their cortex, but getting them to use their brainstem and limbic systems and tune in, see how that affects their interactions with their kids talking about things like rabbit feelings and lion feelings and like you're bringing in new feeling, the meow feeling. I, I just wonder about that. I have a dissertation student um, who's doing her dissertation on interoception and she's developed a training program for parents. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the data on it um, because Right now, a lot of this is in my head and seat of the pants therapy with, with the families. And she is going to be more systematic in doing it and collecting the data. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you have that observation about Zoom because it, it's such a different way of 
doing therapy and certainly people have been doing online therapy and coaching before the shutdown and the pandemic, but now it's almost uh, become the new norm. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there are times I'm saying, I find myself saying to a parent, let's look at what just happened. And it seems like there's more time to talk about it than in the sessions and can't figure out why. I, I'm saying to myself, ooh, we just had the chance to talk about this. And it, it just feels workable. I, I, I feel for me, it's workable. Yeah, and, and the other thing that jumped out at me is another um, comparison to Dr. Shanker's self-reg is that's the one thing he said that really, really helped. They went through and they had the self-reg training and it wasn't really gelling. And then he realized the teachers themselves don't understand self-reg in themselves. And so when they started working with the teachers to, to write down, you know, what makes you dysregulated? Um, what do you do when you're under stress? Do you eat? Do you overeat? Do you eat junk food? Or do you, you know, do other things? Um, I bite my nails. <laughs> so what is it? And can you recognize that in yourself? And can you understand stress behavior and go through that whole thing with them? Then all of a sudden they understood and they could empathize with their students. So he said that was, that made all the difference in the world. What? we're doing with the adults is we're getting them to perceive the object externally, but also to turn it around and to experience themselves as a subject through someone else's eyes. So when Stuart is doing what he's doing with the teachers, what he's doing is he's getting them to turn their eyeballs inward, looking at them, but they're so used to, and all of us are so used to looking outward. It's, it's always external rather than internal. And, and so this whole movement on embodiment, you know, there's been a real kind of psychological, um, paradigm shift or, or explosion in embodiment and and what that really is all about um, on one level it's not certainly not the whole thing but it's getting us to turn around and look inward so that when we're doing something with a child it's with the child but it's also something happening in us and what we can begin to do is we can begin to see how we're creating some things that are going on in the child's reaction. It's not the child out there doing this, this, and this. I'm a part of it that just created this response in the child. And seeing that, that you have that impact. Exactly. On your child. Yeah. Yes. This is an interesting topic and I can understand why you kind of feel like part of this missing puzzle has been solved <laughs> in your work as a psychologist. It, it really, I, I would like to believe, brings us a step forward in terms of our work and adds something to 
um, you know, the, the psychotherapy field um, that we should be paying more attention to. And there may be other people who are doing it, certainly. Um, but the, the wider the noise that we make about this gets, I think it's going to be something that's, that's helpful to, to people in their work with kids. It's just the feeling. Absolutely. And, and I mean, everything I see out there, and, and mind you, I haven't been in the field of psychology for 25 years since I was in grad school, but the, the pop stuff that's out there on mindfulness and all of these other things, they, even though they talk about, you know, tuning in or, you know, in meditation stuff, it, it is all very cognitively driven. Right. And I'm, I, again, I'm sure there are things out there that are less cognitive and more visceral as you're talking about, but um, I, I hope there's a movement towards that because there certainly seems to be a move from behavioral to developmental approaches in general. And this is sort of along that same line, like let's, let's move away from the behavioral cognitive stuff and let's move into the more emotional and experiential and visceral. <laughs> well, you, and, and the fact, what I believe is that whatever is going on inside us is going on inside our whole bodies. What we can't do is we really can't compartmentalize the way we think we can compartmentalize. So if, if somebody is depressed, for example, that's just not a feeling in one's brain. And, you know, the serotonin levels, um, that's a piece of it. But somebody who's depressed is also experiencing inflammation that studies are finding that out. And what they're finding out is that these disorders that we have looked at as if they are located in an area of the brain and we give medication to address that area, that medication in itself is affecting the whole body. And it's not only affecting a little structure in the brain. And, and so as we begin to sort of assimilate all of this or accommodate to it, what you're going to see is that there's more holistic work in treating all of these disorders rather than you know, one size fits all. And if you have this disorder, we'll give you 20 milligrams of this or that, or we'll use cognitive behavioral therapy. We need everything. And um, we need to learn that as a profession. Yeah. And I did a podcast with Dr. Stephen Porges a few weeks back about his polyvagal theory. And it was just so interesting to see how he's applied this idea of you know, when your nervous system and your, your physiology is in this defensive mode and you're under threat and, and it comes from our evolution as a, a mammal that, um, you know, it can shut down so many different things and manifest in all kinds of ways in mental illness. And so he, he gave examples of, you know, hypertension and, and um, anxiety disorders all the way up to, you know, fibromyalgia and things like that, where uh, in um, irritable bowel syndrome, when, you know, your body just is under defense, it's, it's being adaptive, it's doing its job, it's protecting itself, but finding a way to calm that nervous system, and maybe this interoception is part of that. Yeah, yeah, and, and 
obviously we're not going to get into it, but, but the, the whole difference where people now are studying allostasis versus homeostasis. With homeostasis, we have a set point, like the thermostat in the house. With allostasis, as you have different experiences, that set point in your body is changing because your body now has to deal with things at this level rather than that level. So each time that you have an experience, there are systemic changes and there are interoceptive changes that go on. And, and that, that's something that also is fairly new to, to look at. What it shows is that the body adapts to higher and higher levels of stress at the same time as your body is being damaged by that stress. So it doesn't do you in that first time. Your body okay. adapts to the stress, you live with the stress, but what it does is it weakens the system and your system is dealing with it under strain. And then if there's more stress added, there's more strain, the system is working but it has to adapt to the strain. That's very different from homeostasis, just taking you back to that, you know, um, initial level, because if you have to deal with more stress and you're dealing with the level of dealing with the old stress, you're going to be done in, <laughs> you know, your body isn't going to be able to manage that increased stress. So you have allostasis and allostatic load. Allostatic load is the stress on the system. At first, it, it was sounding to me like allostasis is like a dynamic version of homeostasis, but it's not even that it's dynamic because you, because of that continued load of stress that you're it's trying system. to manage. Yeah, the system continuing to manage different levels of stress, and so the body is working while you're getting ulcers and you're getting colitis and you're getting this and this, but you're still functioning. Your body is allowing you to function under those conditions, but that's not very healthy. And if you think about what um, some autistics, many if not most autistics have gone through their whole life being misunderstood and possibly mistreated or um, you know, having therapies that have given them post-traumatic stress disorder, they're probably going through this process and, and then you see a lot of comorbidities as they get into adulthood. That's exactly right, yeah. Mm -hmm. one, one quick thing, um, there, there is new research, it's very new research. Um, the circuit in the brain that is responsible for the interoception, the, the sort of the hub of it is the insula. It's, it's a part of um, the brain. And um, there is some very new research, and it's on adults. They haven't done it with kids yet, on the insula and autism. And one of the things that they're finding in this new research is that the connectivity of the insula to other parts of the circuit is weaker in adults with autism. And so this is opening up a whole new avenue of, of study. So interoception, autism, um, you know, there may be a really important link that 
is going to open up the door for further treatment. That's, that's exciting. And I guess I like to think of it instead as proactive in prevention. So you don't get to the point where you need the treatment, but of course, um, you don't want to leave out the whole population that, that you can't have gone back and changed history with. But hopefully we can be proactive with um, new cases coming in and help parents really attune to their children. And we're, the, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Dr. Glavinsky, it's always a joy speaking with you and hearing what you're, what you're working on and what you're thinking about. And I hope that our listeners enjoyed this and they can look at affectautism.com for the latest podcast with Dr. Glavinsky and I'll put a write-up with links to different things that we mentioned. Great. Well, thank you. And Love these conversations, thank you. Yes, they're great. And uh, we'll connect again in 2021 and hopefully post pandemic. That would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.